Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about why COVID-19 might be a gift in disguise, along with some secrets from those in recovery about how to deal with isolation. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the now fully 43 to Brian from happy happy day after birthday, by the way, which is a weird day, isn't it? After the celebration high sort of comes crashing down a little bit. Are you feeling okay? I'm doing okay. The rain's not helping, but you know, it's a little anticlimactic. As you said, after the show yesterday, I got a lot more cleaning of my garage done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My fam, my wife got my favorite pie, cherry pie. I don't know what your favorite pie is. Mine is cherry pie and ice cream. Yours is rhubarb? Strawberry rhubarb. Wow. Okay. Okay. Hands down. Hands down. Oh, I love cherry pie. So I had some of that last night. Open gifts. It was a delightful day. It was a wonderful birthday of uh, when you can't do anything, but it was still fun to be together as a family. And uh, yeah, now and then you wake up the next day and it's just another day. <laughs> <laughs> At least you got the garage clean. That's the moral of the story. Yes. Uh, yes a couple of things. Really you can you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post. All of our articles, we have a lively dialogue there. Sometimes people will make accusations about us there. Uh, you can also send us messages if you have suggestions for the show or topics or interviews. We're also podcast wherever it is you get podcasts and on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Subscribing, rating, reviewing on any of those really does help us out a whole lot. And uh, a big hearty thank you to those of you who have, even especially in the last week or so. Um, Brian, we've been talking a little bit about this thing called COVID-19. Have you heard of it? Briefly, uh, yeah, a couple a couple times in the last couple of weeks, yeah. <laughs> What's been interesting is when we first started talking about it, it felt like it was a lot of news-type things, like right. here's what's the latest, here are the parameters, here are the latest laws and restrictions. And now it feels like there's been a whole tidal wave of pretty interesting writing on how do we navigate in the midst of this? What does it look like going forward? And as pastors, I'm I'm particularly interested in like the gathering conversation. Right. I've had two or three Zoom calls even just today talking about what will this look like come summer, come fall, come winter. We're not even unified necessarily between the north and the south, the east and the west. It feels like churches are as divided on this topic as any. But I found this this uh, article, Christina Today, and it says when only two or three can gather. The subheading is, as group sizes shrink, discipleship opportunities can grow. This is an article by Ben Connolly. What's uh, what's going on here? Yeah, and you frame it really well. We've been having those same conversations, and it varies by state. I was watching a pastor friend of mine on Facebook today in Indiana where they're starting to open up, and he was talking about why his church isn't opening up yet. Like, right. Uh, and, and it is uh, going to be a hard uh, path to try to navigate. But this article reminds us that there's uh, – other ways to do discipleship, and what this article would say is much more effective ways to do discipleship than all of us being gathered under uh, one speaker and all of this stuff. And so, um, you know, this kind of talks about the opportunities of only having small groups of two or three uh, in this context. But even, you know, you might think of small groups of five or six or whatever, uh, basically saying, and, and this has a lot to do with uh, kind of the whole missional community movement and um, I, I think the author from this writes for Saturate. And uh, it, it's just this idea that even if we can't be gathered all together, that there is discipleship doesn't stop. And in fact, 
he would suggest that the new ways to be able to do discipleship, if you're not used to smaller groups like this, might be more effective. So he mentions uh, five different ways, five different principles that may be helpful in what he calls the ever-changing COVID scene, even when only two or three can gather. So again, these are five ways to kind of rethink or maybe reframe the significance of gathering predominantly or solely in small groups. The first one, he says, groups of two or three help each person become deeply known. Small groups may seem like a ubiquitous part of ministry in 2020, but despite annual campaigns and regular pushes for people to, quote, get connected or join a group or go deeper, many churches have individuals who have not taken that step. In a season where people are barred from their offices, deprived of social obligation, and stuck at home, they have an increased felt need for others. When our church plant grew to about 80 people, we had to make a vital decision. Was it more important that I, the only staff person, know everyone on the surface level, or that some leaders know everyone at a deeper level, even if it wasn't me? Our decision to prioritize the latter initially pressed against my pastoral identity. I needed to be needed. But after making this change in this direction, I couldn't deny how much better our new approach was. And he goes on to kind of talk about what a lot of us know, how significant it is, how significant it is for leaders uh, to make these decisions where they're not the bottleneck. And he says, everyone wants to be heard, listened to, valued, and cared for. Yet in any church of over 10 or so people, it's impossible for a pastor to know everyone at that level. In many churches, it's hard for every person to even have that kind of relationship with a church staff member or elder. But if we equip and deploy leaders well, small groups are one of the best ways to meet this need. And I think he's spot on. Absolutely. And number two, he says, two or three person discipleship can continue when other programs freeze. Right. He says over the past month, he's been on multiple calls with church leaders whose staffs are wondering how to manage their work days. Right. You're not planning your your 40 plus vocational hour, 40 plus hour each week when there's not the normal programming or normal teaching opportunities. Uh, and he says, on the other hand, though, there's a now there's no better way for ministry staffs to use this time than to be redeployed into discipleship, too. He says one on one Zoom calls, one on two Zoom calls, just checking in. And at the end here, he says uh, the old school pastoral house visit has never been as vital as it is now. But we must find a way, excuse me, to do it in a season when people won't even open their doors. So he's saying uh, this allows us. The two or three groups, people groups, allow you to keep going even when other things have been shut down. Yeah, and this third one is something that you and I have touched on a couple of times in the last two months. It says groups of two or three can provide connection for the isolated. Long before social distancing and shelter in place became part of our vernacular, people have longed for the kind of connection that increases as a group size shrinks. Whether it's attending counseling sessions or asking a neighbor for help, we often feel much safer opening up to fewer people for some even thinking about sharing an opinion in a large uh, in a group larger than five triggers anxiety. Applying this general p- principle in our current challenging season drives leaders to create human connection for those who need it most. Shut-in neighbors, people dealing with shame and guilt, people new to town, and more. Even as we're forced to isolate, we see increased longing for human connection. And he goes on to say, one local church leader named Bobby shared with me the story of a reclusive neighbor whom we'll call John. Uh, age made it difficult for John to get out of his house, but John hadn't responded to offers to help or pray or even many simple greetings for the first year Bobby lived next door to him. But when an unexpected family death rocked John, Bobby learned that his attempts to show his neighbor love and care had paid off. John reached out, and after months of walking through grief and building a relationship, he joined a small group and later became a believer. So again, this this idea that like there's going to be plenty of people that um, would never really raise a hand, but because of these kind of new realities, I think the church has a really unique opportunity to be mindful of the most vulnerable and isolated in our midst, yeah. which I think is really important. 
Yeah, number four, he says many members can be equipped to digitally disciple two or three. And for sake of time, he basically says there aren't many people who are going to want to lead a home group of 10 or a church class of 50. But when you put it out there, do you want can you disciple and lead two or three people, especially if we resource you? He's saying there's a lot of people who would probably be able to step up to that. I think that's really, really important. And the last one's important too. Number five, groups of two or three allow people to breathe. Part of discipleship, he says, involves helping people breathe, even laugh and find joy in hard moments, whether in person or online. Smaller, less formal meetings can create space for this in ways large formal gatherings cannot. This is something we've been doing at the Yellow Box where one day a week, we just kind of dedicate a couple hour, no agenda Zoom call and people just kind of hang out. And it's been... So much more life-giving than I than I would have guessed. So either way, this article is up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. I highly encourage you to check it out, share it with a friend, maybe forward it to your pastor, because I think it's it's helpful, it's practical, but it also kind of, it's one of those articles that I read and I was like, oh, okay, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it through. It was just some right. good, good right. food for thought as we kind of navigate this new season. We're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can also send us a message if you have ideas or suggestions. We're also podcasted wherever it is you get podcasts on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And one of the things that I've really loved, especially these last two months, have been just the rich diversity of guests we've been able to have because a lot of people are stuck at home. And this is a pretty interesting way that we got to this story. So I'm actually friends with this person who has another friend on staff that we actually already did a story on a couple of weeks ago. I'll stop <laughs> veiling everything in so much secrecy. But first, I'd like to welcome for the very first time, Kristen Hausen. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks so much. It's our pleasure. And before we get into exactly why we have you on the show, could you just introduce yourself to our audience in uh, whatever way you see fit? Sure. Uh, so I um, oversee outreach at Liquid Church, which is located in the great state of New Jersey. Um, and so um, I have the privilege of partnering with the Tim Tebow Foundation and just other community organizations to get what we say are people out of our seats and into the streets um, serving our communities. So Liquid's one church with seven locations. And so I get the pleasure of supporting all our campuses and our outreach efforts. So That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Well, from my end, it's uh, it, we can never have enough people from New Jersey on the show, so we're glad to have you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, just wondering, uh, a director of outreach over such a large organization, large church, in this time of COVID-19 and all the changes, how much has changed for your job and what kind of things are you guys doing uh, to help, especially the people of New Jersey during this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, the needs are not just physical, they're spiritual, they're emotional. And so, you know, our campuses have, um, our church has really responded um, in different ways to each of those needs. And so um, our campuses have been like boots on the ground in their community of uh providing support um, through a hotline that people can call in and talk to a pastor, have them pray for them. Uh, But we've also been able to partner with Convoy of Hope and Feed the Children um, and provide uh, twice a week distribution of essential um, emergency supply kits um, that have gone out from the most northern county of Sussex Sussex County all the way down to Mercer and Atlantic County. Um, And so we... 
have uh, created this little mobile missionary army, as we call it. Um, <laughs> they come up on Saturday, grab three or four kits. We could provide them with a travel kit with two masks and gloves. So when they drop off the box at the recipient's home, they ring the doorbell, step back, and then um, the recipient's able to have the box that will really carry the, them and their family through a week um, worth full of groceries. Um to hopefully help just ease the burden that so many people in New Jersey are facing right now. Wow. So that's actually how we first heard of this story. I think it was picked up by the Christian Post or Christian Headlines. And I think Brian had actually selected the story. And I was like, wait a minute, I, I think I know them. <laughs> and I'd be curious to know, like, what encouragement would you give to someone listening who's thinking, all right, so our church isn't as big as liquids, but we want to do something. We want to be a part of some kind of solution in our neighborhood, in our community, where, wherever they're listening from. What like challenge or hope or, or starting point, maybe would you give someone listening that feels like they want to do something, but they don't know where to start? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because I think everything starts small, right? And right, then right. Um, it picks up momentum. And, um, you know, and so that's kind of where we started. We started with serving small. And so that was just encouraging our neighbors. We had, you know, if kids are home from school, like drawing beautiful artwork on their windows or on their pavement, just to encourage their neighbors around them. Um, yeah. Obviously, I mean, we talk about small groups, right? Caring for your few. And so making sure that um, anyone that's in a group, like, hey, do you need groceries, what's happening with your family members, everyone's okay, or, you know, someone's in the hospital, all right, look, we want to be having our prayer teams engaged. And so really serving small is what birthed this larger, um, you know, relief effort. Um, because people right now are, you know, we have to obviously be social distance and things like that. And so the connection points aren't as, um, they're not as readily available as they have been in the past where we can throw these big, large outreach events and call 5,000 people to them. It's not like that. The world's changed, especially here in New Jersey with COVID-19 impact. And so serving small, providing a meal to the local um, police department or just a neighbor, like those small acts of kindness right now are really making the largest impact. Um, And so I would just say like, start with the people to the left and right of you in your neighborhood. Um, Mm. See how you can bless them. Yeah. I love that. As you guys have get a reputation even before this, but especially now of reaching out into your community, what is the response you get from local politicians, from the community at large who may not be church going people? Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's probably one of the most powerful things that have come, um, that has has been a gift to us um, through this relief work is that we're actually able to partner with our town. Right. And so they right. hear, all right, liquids doing this drive by and delivery of these essential kits. Well, Hey, we have this food pantry that's coming. Our parking lot's too small. Can we come use your parking lot? You know, we also we have a great relationship um, with the mayor of Parsippany, which is where our broadcast campus is. And so they've been, they contacted us and said, Hey, can we just host our food pantry like giveaway at your campus on Fridays. And so of course, right. Like no one's parking there. No one's coming to the office. Like, of course, absolutely. And then, you know, being able to provide some volunteers has been great too. Um, And so just like opening up what we can, right. Mm. Um, The, the, I know a lot of townships at our local campus level are doing, um, 
just like blessing boxes for the first responders and, and police departments. And so partnering with them, um, with their efforts, I think right now it's important to come along with those that um, have the systems in place and have the connections with the food bank and the um, are serving the seniors that are locked in, you know, and can't see their families. Like, how do we touch them um, right. in this age of being virtual, right? You're talking about right. Zoom or FaceTime. Like, how do we meet um, those just needs? And so partnering with those that are um, already doing it has been key for us um, as well as just, you know, you do, you do more better together <laughs> than right. separate. So right. just trying to find those synergies. Yeah. Well, and, and for what it's worth, I mean, you guys as a church and a community has, has been an inspiration to us all the way out here in Chicagoland. And I, I want to make sure that I, I do say this on air, like how, how grateful we are for churches like yours that are in a lot of ways leading the way in thinking things through like this, just because I think, I think you're right. I think it sends a message, a shockwave to our neighborhoods and cities, especially people that are maybe reticent to actually be pro church. And I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to ask you a two part mm -hmm. question and you can choose sure. one or both parts of it. If you want one, okay. do you have any, any like stories that really stand out to you as a result of these efforts? And two, what's been the toughest part about the whole operation? Yeah. So answer, uh, answer them back um, upside down backwards. <laughs> so <laughs> the, t <laughs> the toughest part is that, like the, the numbers keep increasing, the requests keep on yeah. increasing yeah. and like God's so faithful to provide the resources and the, and the partnerships in order to meet those needs. However, hmm. it's showing us that the needs are increasing instead of decreasing. That means more people are hurting, more people are under hmm. pressure, like just like the walls are kind of caving a little bit more in our state um, as yeah. this prolongs, you know? And so right. that is a little you know, just heartbreaking um, because you're hoping relief will come. And so, you know, everyone's doing their little part to bring glimmers of relief. Um, and so that's the most encouraging piece is just seeing, you know, there are people that don't attend our church that are a part of our mobile missionary army, right? There's people right. putting our kids together that are like, Hey, I have two hands. I'm healthy. You know, please let me, you know, come and support. And, and so people, right now we're just linking arms. It doesn't matter what church you're a part of um, or not a part of a faith. Like we're all in this together. And so that's kind of been like the beautiful part as well as seeing the churches partner together in our state to make sure mm -hmm. that everyone is feeling just the touch and having their physical, you know, food needs specifically being met. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you get sweet notes. I, you know, I, I see both things. I get messages from both those that are delivering the boxes saying, mm. like, this was the best part of our week. Like, it mm. helped my, like, shift of all the focus on me and my family's needs and the pressure of, like, oh, my gosh, like, now I get to be a vehicle to deliver hope and just what fresh wind that brought to their sales as a family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then also we just got this note this uh the, from this past saturday that just said um every night i repeat a little litany of prayers in my head please let this be over please keep my loved ones safe and please help me keep a roof a roof over my head and please let the news be more positive tomorrow and then wow. she continues to say just like she knows god's provide she knows god always provides um and it was this little gift of one less grocery run one less worry on my mind and one less bill to pay to have this blessing box of hope and so like you know someone opens their door and there's a box of hope there it's like it's just a refreshment and a reminder mm. of that there's people that care and you're not alone and i think yeah. if anything this the quarantine has just made people feel really lonely and we want people to know like they're not alone um yeah. so 
That's great. That's so good. That's so good. You've been listening to Kristen Hosen, who's the director of outreach for Liquid Church in New Jersey. You can learn more at liquidchurch.com. That's liquidchurch.com. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins on this sad and rainy day. I mean, my name is Ian Simpkins, regardless of the weather. <laughs> Only when it's sad and rainy. <laughs> I can't help it. I think this is just how I was raised. But anytime, like if you're at a department store or a restaurant and someone goes, if you need anything, I'm Sean. My dad would always go, what if I don't need anything? Then who are you? <laughs> That's the funny. always like, still Sean. And he's like, yeah, move it along. <laughs> I can't not think like that. It is uh, really ingrained in my psyche. All right. So a couple of house cleaning things. First, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. You can send us messages. You can rate and review that page. That helps a whole lot. You can also do the same with the podcast. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Those are both great places to uh, interact with the different content that we're sharing. And before we get into this article about the possibility of COVID-19 being a gift in disguise, Brian's got some words for you about something cool that's going on at the station. Yeah, we've been telling you about this a lot over the past month, but we are really excited uh, that during the coronavirus pandemic, while we know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours, we also know that there are still many businesses out there that are trying to remain open and trying to serve the public as best they can. So if that's you, if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. All one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. There's going to be a brief form right there. Fill it out. And we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. No catch. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's funny when you say it's totally free. I just imagine you doing it like in an Alicia Silverstone kind of voice, like a like a valley girl, like a, it's <laughs> Guys, it. it's totally free. <laughs> that's how I picture you doing it. Is that not what's time. happening? Next time, no, next time. Next time we'll go I'm with sure it. that's how they intended it. But the, right, people, so the people who just tune in at that point, they're going to be really confused. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of opportunities during the two hours of this show to be utterly confused. That's Truth. not, that's not going to be the only one. All right, so the, here's the headline. Uh, one thing I don't like about COVID-19 and why it's a gift in disguise. In fact, later in the article... It's going to get into five steps to become a better leader post-COVID-19. So I want to get to that, but I like the way that this article begins. It simply says, um, like you, there are so many things I don't like about COVID-19. Obvious as they may be, let me list a few. Uh, Number one, it hurts people. Number two, it's crushing the economy. Number three, it greatly limits uh, where we can go. Number four, it has created sustained fear, worry, and anxiety. Number five, it's almost impossible to predict. And in spite of all of this, we need to smile, laugh when we can, keep our chin up and know that we will get through it, even though it's not easy. In fact, it's difficult. I lost a dear friend last week who had been in ICU on a ventilator for three weeks. It's heartbreaking. No matter how difficult the challenge as leaders, we must communicate hope. And that first requires hope within us. That hope springs from our faith in Christ, our confidence as a leader, our personal growth through this season. And then in bold letters, one of the most important questions you can ask yourself right now is this, who are you becoming during this time, what kind of leader, mom, dad, spouse, parent, or friend is shaping within you? You're going to get through this pandemic. So determined to come out on the other side, 
a better version of you. I'm wondering, Brian, is that a a question that you found yourself wrestling with in the midst of all this? I think so. Even though maybe I wouldn't be able to put those words to it. I think that uh, I do find myself going like, how am I going to be different six months from now, a year from now? So we ask those about our church and about our kids and about all of our events. But I have begun asking that of myself. So, yeah, I, I think this article is touching on something that probably a lot of us are starting to feel. And I like what he says next. He says, COVID-19 is revealing stuff about me that is less than my best. Some things I just don't like. Sustained pressure does that. It squeezes in and reveals the cracks in your character, your spiritual maturity and leadership. It has in me cracks that you thought you were taking care of. The good news is that I also like some things uh, I see being revealed in me during this time. I hope that you like some of the things being revealed about you as well. The gift in this very difficult time is the opportunity to become a better, stronger, and wiser person and leader on the other side. Don't waste your opportunity. So then he gets into these five, and we have a few minutes to get into these. You want to you take yeah. number one here? Yeah, it's five steps to become a better leader then. Uh, and again, he talked about leading an organization, but also leading your family and leading right. in all sorts of different spots. Number one, now is not the time to hunker down, duck, and take cover till it's all over. I get it. It's exhausting. It's wearing us all out. There's so much of the unknown. We'd rather be living in a greater sense of normalcy. But as leaders, we simply cannot shelter up and hope to wait out the storm. If you're going to if you are leading through a storm, you have to be engaged in it to be effective. Uh, If you are leading anyone, your family, a small group, a campus or the entire church, you must be in deeply touch with the reality of what is happening and aware of what people are thinking and feeling. And so this call to be engaged, don't don't uh, just hunker down during this. Number two, he says, get honest about fears, anxieties and insecurities. He writes, you can't help anyone handle their fears if you aren't honest about yours. That's good. I've encountered a few leaders who say I have no fears. Really? (laughs) No fears whatsoever. I'm not referring to debilitating fears that completely overwhelm you and cause you to shut down on the inside, but normal, natural human fear of something that can harm you, the people you love or the people that you lead. We need not be consumed or controlled by those fears, anxieties, or insecurities, but do need to acknowledge them. And I won't read the rest of it, but I have I have found myself gravitating most towards leaders who have been willing to say, yeah, we have a plan, but there's certainly some fear there. I think that's, I think that's good wisdom. Absolutely. Number three, when pressure begins to rise, pay attention to what starts to leak. As pressure increases, I've seen my patience run thin, my thinking grow small, and my perspective become askew. I don't like any of that, but I'm taking advantage of this crazy season and leaning in to become a stronger person and a better leader. How about you? Any, he says, quote, leaks. What do you need to pay attention to as leaders? We never, we must never stop learning, growing, and changing. If we do, our leadership soon becomes less effective and eventually ineffective. He quotes John Maxwell at the end here. It says, it's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you that's going to make a difference. Actually, like right above that, he quotes another John Maxwell who said recently, wisdom is always extracted from adversity. That's, mm, I'm going to remember good. that. That's really good. I'm just going to read the last two real quickly for the sake of time. Mm-hmm. Number four, take note of when you are at your best in new circumstances. That's a really good encouragement. And then number five, pray bigger prayers. Prayers of any size or scope are good. In fact, some of the most personal, intimate, and focused prayers are among the best. But there are times like right now when God is calling us to bigger prayers. Do any of these five particularly resonate with you, Brian, as someone who you know, both leads a church, but also I imagine is leading a small group and is leading a family and all that stuff. I think that one about pressure is an interesting one. Number three, when pressure begins to rise, what leaks out? So a lot of times when pressure rises, we like to think, how do I want to 
what do I want to project? What do I want to, but what is actually coming out? And so, you know, he says when pressure increases on him, his patience runs thin. He starts to mm-hmm. think differently. Like when we are under pressure, how do we naturally react to keep a look at that, pay attention to that and make any changes necessary? I thought that's a really uh, good one. What about yourself? Well, and we kind of skip number four too, but take note of when you are at your best in new circumstances. Yeah. It says, how have you surprised yourself in positive ways? Maybe, you maybe didn't think that you had it in you, but you did. We've all been impressed with and grateful for our healthcare professionals, but you don't have to serve in the front lines or be a hero to rise up to the best version of you. I haven't heard a whole lot of people talking about that. I think that's an right. important thing to observe that while everything seems to sort of be upside down right now, where have you sort of surprised yourself that you stepped up or that you performed or delivered better than maybe you or others expected? I think those are important things especially as like the rest of our rhythms are thrown out of whack to kind of to kind of hold on to those a little bit more right. a little more tightly. Well coming up next 10 secrets that people in recovery from addiction know that could help us all survive this global pandemic. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, howdy friends, family, countrymen, lend us your ears if you will for just a quick moment. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. It's It's been extra lively there as of late. I would encourage you to peruse, to meander, to dawdle on over, if you don't mind. And uh, you can also send us messages if you have ideas for future shows or interviews or topics. We really, really do want this show to serve you all well. So if there's a topic or an angle or discussion you would be interested in us having, we would be happy to do so. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that, honest to God, hand in my heart, does really help. And Brian has recently discovered that you also can just ask Alexa mm-hmm. to play the podcast. We should see if Alexa can also write a review. Can you just ask <laughs> Alexa, hey, Alexa, can you subscribe, rate, and review? Just say something nice on my behalf. <laughs> AI technology is closing in on that possibility, I think, which is terrifying. Um, She'd be like, I, I can do that, but I, I'm not guaranteeing a good review. Yeah, right. right. I'm going to make it up myself. Uh, <laughs> so the headline I want to talk about is 10 secrets that people in recovery from addiction know that could help us all survive this global pandemic. But before we get into that, I'm going to mention briefly Thrivent. So I've said it a bunch of times on this show. I love Thrivent. I've been a Thrivent member for like eight years. You can learn more at Thrivent.com incredible organization, Fortune 500, non-for-profit. They've been around for 100-plus years. But two other things, if you're looking for a career change, you can go to thrivent.com slash careers. There's a whole mess of opportunities, and you don't even have to have a background in finance necessarily. It's worth checking out. Also, one of the things that they've been doing that's really cool, they're providing all these free webinars. They're wanting to resource people as they're dealing with homeschooling, or stress, or mental health stuff, or leadership, and uh, there's a whole bunch more coming up. Uh, most notably, maybe, is this Thursday at 11 a.m., uh, Dr. Ed Stetzer is going to talk about leading through times of crisis, and so we're sharing all those links on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. It's all totally free. It's really, really great content. I cannot recommend enough that you uh, be a part of all that. Okay, so this article out of medium.com, Brian, what is the general gist of what's going on here? Yeah, it starts out by saying people in recovery can teach us a lot about making it through tough times with strength and dignity. So basically, we're all in tough times now, and and they're saying, what can we learn from from the recovery community? People who have been in recovery, how do you do this? I find this fascinating. So it's a list of 10. So let me read the first one. Uh, The fight is fixed. 
And the author says, wait, what? Is it really a central tenet of recovery to just give up and accept that things can't be changed? Well, yes. Many people recovering from addiction must accept that they cannot control their substance abuse once they start using. This allows Mm -hmm. them to move forward with the goal of not using at all. We must take a deep breath and accept the reality of COVID-19 before we can navigate it. That Mm -hmm. we are quarantined, that we've lost a job, that we're anxious. We do not do this out of defeat, but so that we can move forward and find ways to reach out to friends, file for unemployment or challenge those in power to do better. So this idea that uh, it, that this is going on, essentially. When he gives to the example of the serenity prayer common in recovery meetings, it says, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I've actually long found that prayer to actually be very, very helpful. Absolutely. Number two, he gives an acronym, HALT, if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. These four basic states affect life in a big way. They can be particularly challenging in combination. We've all been uh, we've all been the hangry version of ourselves, and that isn't <laughs> pleasant for anyone. Checking in with yourself using HALT can be a good preventative medicine. Do you really need to tell that person what you think right now? These tips are the foundation of self-care. For those in recovery, paying attention to HALT, which again is hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, can prevent dips in mood that prompt returns to drug use. For those weathering a pandemic, they'll help us keep it together so that we can be there for our friends and family. You can't pour from an empty cup, Mm. so take care of your own needs first. That's great. This next one's really important. Progress, not perfection. People will stumble early in recovery. Not everyone will relapse, but everyone will have emotional outbursts, make poor decisions, and feel overwhelmed at times. The, those who succeed are those who keep trying anyway. If you're in a funk from isolation, it's never too late to pick yourself up, even if that means doing one small thing at a time to improve your well-being, like drinking mm-hmm. a glass of water or calling a friend. Living with the new normal, heck, living in general, is a learning process for all of us, so don't hate on yourself for stumbling a little bit or even a lot. That's good. <laughs> That's probably something that I feel like uh, everyone could use a little bit Absolutely. of. Absolutely. <laughs> And then number four, again, this is a list of 10, says serenity is not freedom from the storm, but peace amid the storm. People Mm. in recovery must learn to face life head on without substances to numb them. Uh, They learn to exist alongside difficult circumstances instead of running from them. While this brings sorrow, it also creates new capacity for joy. No matter how long the the current pandemic lasts, life will always have its challenges. Resilience in the face of inevitable hardship will serve us through the current situation and beyond. Hmm. Number five, keep your head where your feet are. Those early in recovery often get caught up wondering how they'll make it. Things feel uncertain, and they can't imagine going on for years in sobriety. They are encouraged to take things, quote, one day at a time to remain in the present and deal with life's difficulties as they arise. See, it's Mm -hmm. easy to worry about what ifs or how long the current situation will last. We're healthier and more productive when we bring our minds back to what's happening now. Instead of trying to predict what lies ahead, focus on doing the next right thing, as mm. is often said uh, in recovery meetings. Meditation and other forms of mindfulness can help with this immensely. Okay, so we only have a couple of minutes left. I'm just going to read the next few, if that's okay. Go for it. And uh, then whatever time we have left, we'll respond. So number six, uh, service transforms pain. I think that's really, really true. Number seven, gratitude is an action word. I'm going to come back to that one. Number eight. It's about surviving, but it's also about thriving. Number nine, it's mutual aid, not self-help. 
Number 10, normal is just a setting on the dryer. <laughs> That's really good. Which, which of those four that I just read uh, do you want to take a deeper dive into? Well, you said the gratitude one, so I'll let you go back to it. So I'll go with that next one. It's about surviving. Uh, it's not. It's about surviving, but it's also about thriving, uh, which is an easy one to remember as it rhymes and all this stuff. But so much of being, you know, our... our so many things being closed and us being at home, we could just be get into this mindset of just, I have to just survive until this changes. Yeah. Right. Uh, and instead looking at this as an opportunity to thrive. And, and what does that look like as in your job, in your family, with the extra time you have, whatever it might be, what does it look like to thrive rather than just survive this? Yeah. And the one about gratitude being an action word, the one before it's really good too. When he talks about service transforms pain, he says service yeah. to others is one of the most important pillars of addiction recovery. We could probably do a whole segment on that. But he says for gratitude, remembering what we still have and the ways in which we're fortunate can be a great buffer against hardships. Those early in recovery sometimes struggle to break free of the assumption that, quote, everything is awful. Listing things to be grateful for challenges that assumption and encourages perseverance. I think it was Tim Keller who said uh, gratitude is incomplete if it goes unexpressed. And he was kind of talking about, you know, this biblical word Thanksgiving. Like it isn't don't just let it live as something that you feel in your heart, but to actually yeah. like this author is suggesting like write it out or maybe even in the case of social connection, like tell somebody that you're grateful for them or what you're grateful for. I think that's, I think that's really important. And the other idea too, about this mutual aid, not self-help, it says there are many paths to recovery, but we all need community. And I, mm. I think that's a, that's a really good reminder that regardless of where you're at and this journey or how you feel like you're doing today, like we, we need each other. And I think uh, at the very least, this article is posted on our Facebook page. We'd love to know what you think, yeah. what you would add to it, what you would take away. I don't. Is there one that stands out to you as like maybe the most important in your life, Brian? I mean, that last one right now, normal only being a setting on the dryer. Yeah. <laughs> Besides <laughs> a really funny way to put it is, you know, how often are we like, man, when things just get back to normal, I just want it back to normal. And, and this right. concept that there is no real normal, it's uh, things change. You have to adjust to kind of what's new and how things are in that moment. So remaining present and not this longing for quote unquote normal, I think is a real important one because if you're always just longing for something right. that's not going on right now, you're you're just going to either miss what's going on now or you're just going to struggle in the present. Yeah, I totally agree, man. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about Christians and science. We're going to talk about how is this recession affecting millennials and then three ways that social media is stealing our joy. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're right. Coming up this hour, how are millennials dealing with COVID-19? Also, three ways that social media is stealing our joy. And lastly, should Christians trust scientific experts? That's all coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. If you're hearing me say welcome back and you're wondering what happened, we just did a whole hour and you need to go back and listen to the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing all of that. Even just giving a smiley face review would help us out so very much. You can also find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all the articles that we talk about. You can also send us a message if you have ideas or suggestions for the show. We would love, love, love for this show to serve you all well. And you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And is there anywhere else they can find us? Do we need any more ways, Brian? I, I don't think like so. Not. But 
just in conversation with friends, you talk about it, talk about the show. I think that's, you know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe head on over to the Facebook page and just share it with a friend or tag that someone's name or does that, is it starting to sound desperate? It's starting to sound desperate, isn't it? I just think you're presenting opportunity is what you're doing right now. So is that I what it is? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. So I, I put a couple of articles here in our rundown, but the one I want to talk about first is why the COVID-19 economy is particularly devastating to millennials. There's a couple of other things I want to talk about. Uh, one of them is, some of the uh, death expectations looking out in August, maybe possibly doubling what we have now, which is terrifying. There's also a food aspect to this. So there's all sorts of food that's being honestly just dumped. And there's a whole lot of other kind of things in the weeds there. But I want to talk first about the economy as it pertains to millennials, because I think there's a lot of things here that I honestly hadn't really considered before reading this article. So why don't you uh, get us into it? Yeah, there's so much in this article, lots of graphs and other stuff. It's at Vox.com. You can find it on our Facebook page. But it says this, the economic toll of the coronavirus pandemic is immense with tens of millions unemployed and the U.S. economy shrinking at a rate unseen in more than a decade. Global financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund are warning that COVID-19 could trigger a global economic slowdown comparable even to the Great Depression, it says. One of the groups likely to suffer the most is millennials, many of whom have yet to fully recover from the Great Recession. Right. Uh, the Atlantic's Annie Lowry said this. One thing we know is that younger workers who are more fragile are already being more hard hit. Older folks will suffer greater wealth losses, but at least they had the wealth cushion. So before getting into the details, that does make sense, doesn't it? A lot of millennials, you're early in your job life. You're probably still paying off student loans. Uh, you haven't been in the job force very long, so you probably haven't made you're not making a ton of money. Uh, it kind of makes sense that they're the first ones to either lose their jobs or or get hit by these pay cuts uh, that that those people who are older might have a little bit of a cushion. This makes sense, but it's uh, not really something I'd really thought about. Well, and you don't have any millennials in your house, though, either. Do you like it makes sense that right No, I don't. This wouldn't necessarily like by some metrics, I might be the older end of millennial. I don't think that I am. Uh, it de- honestly, it depends on who you ask. But like there's there's a I mean, again, it's a long, long article with lots of graphs and lots of figures. But like what you were saying, being first to be laid off. A couple of other things that the article mentions is that a lot of millennials delayed home buying, which means that they don't have stable equity. Like that's another, that's another effect of all this that I hadn't really thought about. You talk about the great recession it says people of color are more affected in general. And that means more financial stress for millennials, wage gaps and heavier student loan burdens could make the pandemic more difficult for millennials of color. And then millennials were in bad shape before the pandemic due to student debt. That's something that we've talked about a number of times on the show in, in general. I don't know. I, I'm surprised how surprised I was by some of these figures, to be honest. Right. And I think it is easy, like you were saying, like, hey, I'm not, I'm not in this place. I'm not a millennial like you and I. Even the very fact that, you know, like we still have jobs that we get to do. That's a, yep. I'm, we're incredibly grateful and blessed by that. But we know that that's not a reality for a lot of people and young people in particular. Yeah, I hadn't thought of this. Millennials disproportionately work in the industries hit the hardest. All right. It says every industry has been hit hard. But looking at data from March, it's clear that the leisure and hospitality industries, which include hotels and restaurants alone, right. lost 459,000 jobs. And when they do 
who works in those industries, you see it being um, a higher percentage of millennials than in other industries, more of your classic business world and other things. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of being low man on the totem pole at a lot of jobs because of their age, but millennials, especially right out of college and stuff, are in a lot of these industries that are getting hit the hardest. Again, this is why I love this show, man. I love doing these articles because it's not, not something I ever would have thought about or right. really known, but now you see it and you're like, yeah, that really does make sense. So you now juxtapose that then, Brian, with this other article out of the Wall Street Journal that says U.S. deaths top 70,000 amid warnings about states reopening. So 70,000 is a that's a pretty frightening number. And I just read a report this morning that was estimating that number could double by mm-hmm. August, which if you remember, I think. I mean, is. As recent as a couple of weeks ago, some of the numbers they were expecting there to be like 60,000 deaths, but not until August to mm-hmm. already be at 70 now and to now be speculating that we might we could potentially double that by August. But then in light of everything you were just saying about some of the economic hardships, there are a number of states that are already reopening. What do you what do you make of, of that tightrope walk? Uh, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch on some levels. It's scary on some levels. Yeah, I, I really wrestle with it. I have had a lot of conversations with friends and family about this because you do, you see the, the on, on the one hand, you see uh, the reports of deaths being above 70,000 right now. Yeah. And it's weird. Like you said, there were models early on. Remember where it was like, we're going to lose more than a million people. And then it was like, nope, we're not going to lose more than 50,000. And it was all over the place. And now right, uh, it's kind of landed. Um, but yet you see people protesting to be open and you start hearing about small businesses. Um, we were talking to somebody who has a small business who said, yeah, they think they can make it to, you know, at best to early July. Another wow. friend whose friend owns a restaurant saying they could probably make it another month. And so you start, I think you use that word juxtaposition. You start putting these upon each other. Uh, the health and the, and is such a huge and paramount thing that we have to be thinking about, but there's these other things that we need to think about. Um, and on top of that is, you know, you and I did a story last week about quarantine fatigue. And uh-huh. um, for those of us who we really haven't, knock on wood, you know, uh, haven't, this hasn't hit us hard in terms of our health or people close to us. And, and you start to understand why people want to start opening up. And it's just so hard because this is where it's hard that there's not like one thing that's going on in our country. Like that state's doing one thing, our state's doing another thing because you start to go, I don't know what I'm supposed to believe when I turn on the news. But what I do think, what I do hope never happens is that we lose sight of that number. Um, Like, you know, if six months ago I told you something's going to happen in our country that's going to take 70,000 plus people's lives, you would have been like, that is imagine unimaginable but right now it just kind of feels normal as you see the number tick up and up so i don't know man how do you process it this whole should we open should we what what should we be doing how do you even filter that news well we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the show a really brilliant article from biologos i don't know if you follow biologos at all or not uh i cannot recommend enough for you to bookmark biologos by the way because the headline there is should Christians trust scientific experts. So we're going to get into the weeds a little bit there. But like I'm looking at my newsfeed right now. Another another story out of Washington Post says Vice President Pence says coronavirus task force could be right. disbanded within a month. So and obviously the comments are as divided as anything. So like you ask how I navigate it uh, poorly. I navigate it poorly. <laughs> you know, like it. Yeah. Uh, 
just when I think I'm getting a handle on the numbers or the figures or who to listen to or who not to listen to, I feel like there's another curveball. And you're like, okay, well, this guy seems smart too, and he's saying the exact opposite. So this is where I think people of faith, particularly faith leaders, uh, need to be like a light in the darkness right now. They need to they need to figure out how how do you cut through all the noise, all the backbiting? Because obviously, obviously, but we're not going to agree on every point of doctrine or every course of action. But there is an opportunity, I think, to be a like a stabilizing presence, a, yeah. a faithful presence, like David Fitch would mention. Um, but I think a lot of leaders are finding that difficult to do right now. And maybe do you find yourself in that place, like as a pastor, like how do I even weigh in on any of this? I do because I don't want to be somebody who. Uh, who just stirs the pot and who right. jumps in where something like we're going to talk about this later, but something that I don't really know about. I know from what I've read or, but it all depends on who you've read. And so I think it's really important for us as pastors, but just Christ followers, not to be people who are stoking the flames, whether it be conspiracy theories or just here's what we should be doing when you really don't know. I think we need right. to be people who are, you know, building bridges, but also trying to point people uh, towards just some rational, uh, take a deep breath. Let's think this through. Let's have some rational conversations. Well, and that's a good segue to the next article we're going to talk about coming up next. Three ways that social media is stealing our joy. Someone might be listening saying only three. Uh, we're going to cover three of them. <laughs> and uh, that's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hopefully. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good on this cold damp day i don't know why brian i'm still surprised when you have like a really nice weather weekend yes and then you get a day like today it's i'm embarrassed to admit like how much it affects me and i know people listening are like yeah welcome to the midwest which is you're totally true i'm i've lived in the midwest my entire life i don't know why i'm surprised but i still i'm a hopeless romantic brian that's why but uh i will affirm you i feel the same way when it was raining today yeah when it rained today i'm like you've got to be kidding me that means a whole lot, Brian. Well, a couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can uh, see all the articles that we post there. You can send us a message if you have suggestions for a future show. You can also review that page. That helps us out a whole lot. Uh, another place you can subscribe, rate, and review is the podcast. And I recently discovered this, Brian. Did you know that if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, it improves your credit score? I didn't know that, but that sounds like a positive aspect to it. It's not actually true, and I, I need to come clean. That's probably legally, ethically murky at best. So, But um, we could give them credit. We'll give them credit for doing it. That's true, and that's the credit that really matters, right? <laughs> it won't help you with your mortgage, but at least in our eyes, we'll give you, we'll give you credit. Here's credit. <laughs> Here's a handful of credit. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk at 1160hope.com slash the common good. And I mentioned it a little earlier. There's an article at a Gospel Coalition, three ways to keep social media from stealing your joy. But before we get into that, uh, Brian has some good news for you. That's right. During the coronavirus pandemic here at the station, we do know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. That's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we're going to compile all of that information 
uh, and share it with our listeners. It's it's totally free. There's no catch to this. So just go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Right, Brian, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed. Uh-oh. Because earlier in the show, you told me that you were going to read totally oh. free with a particular accent. And uh, I don't I don't feel like we got that. No, I, I'm so, I'm 43 now, man. I forget things. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, you want to, I mean, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself right now if you want. What was it? The Valley girl. Mm. Yeah. Totally free. No, uh, this is like totally free. No. Wow. Cap. That was pretty good. That was better, better than I was anticipating. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> this, this gloomy day doesn't feel so gloomy anymore. All right. You're so, welcome. <laughs> I, I like this article for a couple of reasons. Three ways to keep social media from stealing your joy. It's from Gavin Ortland, And he begins by kind of talking about his general posture towards social media. And I, I find it interesting, too, because it feels like there's no shortage of people who are saying social media is the greatest tool the church has ever had. And then on the other side, the people are like social media is a tool of the devil and we need to get rid of all of our computers and he's saying, I don't think the answer is necessarily to avoid social media altogether, though it may be for some, and all of us should consider our limitations. That's such a wise sentence. Yeah. But then he goes on, he says, but I do think that in the current state of our culture, godliness and social media use will require extra intentionality and ballast. We will not likely drift into an edifying use of Twitter or Instagram. Things like self-promotion and meanness are too powerful a current. So how do we do this? I'm still wrestling with what this looks like, but here are three strategies we might consider starting with. There's a bunch of things. I'd l- I just want him to write more because I felt like balance and admitting that he doesn't have all the answers. Here are some suggestions for possible starting point. Like it just feels like it's winsome and yeah. I'm, I'm interested to get into these three. So why don't you take us to number one? Yeah. Number one is fight envy with gratitude. Social media invites constant comparison, making envy a constant danger. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah, There will always be somebody with more followers and some new crisis you feel you must weigh in on or joke that you want to be part of. It's easy for the fear of being overlooked uh, to become a tyrant or the need to maintain your platform to become a burden. Uh, This author says that they've discovered that the fight against envy is helped by cultivating gratitude for what I have. It helps to focus more on using our platform for actual good than growing it for potential good. Oh, that's good. Rejoice in whatever influence you've been given, however small. Be grateful for it. Cultivate it like a precious garden in a desert. It's also healthy and freeing to regularly offer our influence back to the Lord. Lay it down before him and seek to be genuinely okay with him taking it away. If only you can have more of him. As we do so, it helps to remember that pride is always the path to barrenness and humility, the path to joy. Jesus came with a uh, with a manger, not a parade. Our social media presence should reflect this fact in some way. Oh, the happiness and freedom of simply serving others and not minding obscurity. Man, I'm really going to remember that line. Focus more on using our platform for actual good than growing it for potential good. It kind of makes me think about when we talk about generosity or tithing in church and oftentimes the sentiment is like, yeah, I'll start tithing once I'm a millionaire. You're like, listen, if you're not generous now with whatever you have, the odds of you being generous when you're a millionaire are, are slim, like using what you actually have for good right now, rather than growing it for some potential good. I think it's really good. Uh, Number two, make extra efforts at kindness. 
I've often thought that social media is one of our culture's mechanisms for public shaming. What we used to do with stocks, we now do with Twitter. The scary thing is that people who engage in this kind of activity often get more attention as a result. It's a sobering indication of our fallenness that in certain contexts, we not only tolerate meanness and outrage, we actually reward them. In light of the state of our cultural dialogue and the nature of the medium, we must work all the harder to display kindness. Take extra steps to say something positive whenever you can. Avoid sarcasm more than you normally would. Be extra eager for opportunities to honor someone else. I know this isn't simple, and I don't want to take away from the value of open disagreement and debate. And certainly, there is a time for rebuke and indignation. Some attacks or misrepresentations require a forceful response. But still, it's worth asking with any tweet or post, does this feel more like the flesh or the spirit? Mm. What culture am I contributing to? That is really well written. This is good. Number three is so important. Take breaks. Mm. Uh, regular disengagement is helpful for a healthy life on social media. In addition to taking Sabbath breaks away from social media altogether, you might also consider uh, delete the app on your phone. Just use it on your computer. Mm. Have certain places in your home where you never bring your devices. Uh, use do not disturb function as default practice. Another helpful practice is quite simply to mute or unfollow people who constantly drag you down. Mm. Don't hesitate to do this. You're not required to follow anyone or interact with any comments when doing so is detrimental to your soul. When I'm struggling with envy or loneliness while scrolling through social media, I know it's probably time to disengage for a while or mm. If you ever, if you never argue with people in real life, but you do on Facebook, it's time to balance the two out more. Social media should complement, not compensate for face-to-face interaction. An obvious challenge, though, in a global pandemic. Well, let me just end, too, with the section here he calls the final appeal. He says, those of us who go by the name of Christ must be especially mindful of how we talk to one another. Man, that'll preach. Our interactions on social media play out before a watching world. Even amid our disagreements, we should be distinguished by love, lest we discredit the gospel of grace. I realize that there are some people with whom it is next to impossible to have an edifying interaction. Truly, I think we often need to give greater thought to Titus 3.10 in such instances, which says, as for a person who stirs up division, After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. It might sound harsh, but wisdom will at times require total avoidance. Paul understood this, and so should we. So much is out of our control. We cannot stop the incessant screaming and scrambling that is the Internet, but we can try to reduce our own involvement in the problems and do whatever we can to contribute to a healthier culture. Here's a happy goal to pray for that more Christians would be recognizable on social media by the wisdom that James describes as peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I'm going to go read everything else this guy wrote because I I think this is phenomenal. Yeah, we need to have him on because he's just a good writer. But it's such an important thing right now, even before this pandemic, but especially now as so many of us are on social media more and there's more uh, opinion and anger out there uh, that like, how do we make sure that social media isn't stealing our joy and how are we using it to edify other people? What a great article he has written. Yeah, totally agree. Well, coming up next, a great website called BioLogos, an article by Josh Reeves that reads, should Christians trust scientific experts? That's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to the Com Good, and I take back all the negative things I said about the weather because I saw what the rest of the week holds, and I'm feeling better. So, okay, yes. Apparently, this is a lesson, and Ian needs to. This is a thing I need to admit to you, by the way. <laughs> I like never check the weather oh, ever, really, like ever, 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 ever. So when it's nice, I'm surprised, but when it's awful, I'm also surprised. People were. It's it's evidence, by the way. I've left the windows of my car down in rain more than any person I've ever met in my entire life and then i leave them down i leave them down to air them out after they get rained on and then it just happens again it's it's not a good habit i've gotten better but it didn't happen to my 30s i'm uh, ashamed to admit it and so there's a there's a little bit of information you learned about me if you want to learn more information about brian and i you can find us on facebook the common good radio show that's where we post our articles there's a lively discussion happening on a lot of those you can also send us a message. Not you can. I'd encourage you to send us a message because we would love for this show to serve you well. If there's an article or a discussion or an interview you think would be great, let us know. Uh, please also, I'm going to be more forceful in my language. I've been told I need to. Uh, find the podcast, wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review there. That helps us out a lot. And on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Before I dive into this article from BioLogos that reads, Should Christians Trust Scientific Experts? Just three quick things about Thriving Financial. One, I'm a Thriving member. I love Thriving. They've been really, really good to me. You can learn more at Thriving.com. There's just something about you trusting your money with a Christian organization. They're a Fortune 500 that's been around for 100 years. They're great. Number two, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is where you need to head. You don't even need to have a background in finance. It's a great organization to work for. And uh, what could it hurt just to check it out? Number three, time of quarantining and social distancing. They're providing a whole lot of great webinars and resources for navigating this weird season that we're in. And uh, we were posting all those links on the Facebook page. But coming up this Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, Dr. Ed Stetzer is leading a webinar called Leading Through Time of Crisis. We had him on the show a couple of weeks ago. I trust, I guarantee you it's going to be phenomenal. Check that out. That's all on our Facebook page. You can also go to thrivent.com slash Chicagoland to learn more. Okay. That was a lot of me talking. Why don't you talk now, Brian? Just keep going. No, keep going. Nah, I can't. I, my mouth is tired. So BioLogos here has a great article. I'd encourage you to go to our Facebook page written by Josh Reeves. You can read the whole thing. Interesting. It's from 2018 and it was important then, but man, is it so important now? Should Christians trust scientific experts? Uh, It's this issue of expertise. Uh, It's he writes lurks underneath the surface of most discussions around Christianity and science Christians separate into different camps about the proper role for scientific experts or more fundamentally, whether experts can be trusted later on. He says the idea of having to trust an expert's opinion raises worries, which are understandable. How can I be sure that sure that the expert is correct? When as a layperson, I do not have the training to verify what he or she says to believe an expert requires trust and trust always carries uh, an element of, of risk. And he goes through a lot of background church history mm-hmm. and how did, uh, how through history have people dealt with experts, but man, right now in this time of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, we're all talking about, like, I don't know what expert to believe. Uh, you hear people just disregarding all experts, which seems dangerous, but other times you turn on the news and there's two experts saying completely different things. And so how, especially as Christians, uh, how do we 
uh, navigate this world of uh, of uh, scientific experts. And uh, it's really interesting. So he says this in this post, I will lay out six principles that describe the nature of expertise and where to find it. He says, my hope is that if we can find some agreement on general principles, it will facilitate discussions about how to handle particular cases. So this is super timely. He's going to lay out six principles here. Yeah. And we obviously don't have enough time to get to all of it, but it is posted on our Facebook page. Highly recommend you check it out. It says principle one, we are not intellectually defenseless against experts. Though we should trust experts, this does not mean that we should have blind trust. Part of the reason many reject experts is that we are typically given two choices. One, use your reason to think for yourself, or two, do not use your reason and put your faith in someone else. This leaves out a third, more compelling option. Three, we should use our reason to help make judgments about which expert to trust. That's so important. The ability to reason about experts is, after all, one that we use all the time in modern life. Whenever my car's oil is changed, I must decide whether the additional packages recommended by my technician are even necessary. Likewise, when I read weight loss advice, I pick the most compelling diet based on the credibility of the advice giver. Though we may often make choices about expert advice haphazardly, we should ideally be able to, to offer good reason for why we believe in the truthfulness of certain experts over others. I won't get into the rest of this principle, but I just think that's really, really important. Absolutely. Principle number two, expertise is a skill. The expert is not someone who is merely knowledgeable, but is also able to apply that knowledge to solve problems. Just mm-hmm. as the expertise of the car mechanic lies in his or her ability to fix the car, the expertise of a cell biologist lies in his or her ability to manipulate the cell in a Petri dish and so forth. The close relation of expertise and skill explains why one cannot become an expert by simply memorizing the information in a scientific uh, mm. textbook. I find that one really helpful. Principle number three, there are different types of expertise. As a first approximation, I will distinguish between three areas to which expertise can be applied. These distinctions will help when thinking about when we should trust experts and when we should not. So I'm going to briefly touch on these three for the sake of time. First, there are physical skills, such as when a plumber is able to repair your plumbing or a physicist is able to shoot alpha particles through a tinfoil. I did not know that. Second, there are conceptual skills, such as when we ask a historian to translate and interpret an ancient document or a lawyer to offer a legal opinion. And then the third type of skill is harder to name, but is easy to characterize, resting on the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. I will call it spiritual skill. Where his conceptual skills lies in the ability to apply a body of knowledge to solve problems, the skill of the spiritually wise person lies in the ability to integrate information into a whole to see the big picture. But wisdom is not merely about what one should believe, but also how one should act in the world. In other words, how do I bring my actions into alignment with what is true about the world? For example, a skeptical biblical scholar may be able to go into exhaustive detail about how to best translate a Greek verb, but is likely unhelpful in his or her suggestions on applying the biblical text to your life. That's such an important distinction. I wish we had more time to get into this, but that's a really good yeah. principle. Principle number four, institutions are essential for seeking truth. The need for institutions is a consequence of scientific skill. Scientific education is not a matter of memorizing information, but of working through examples to acquire relevant skills. For example, one does not become a physicist by reflecting on the definition of terms in an equation like F equals MA, 
but we learning how yeah, but learning how to identify forces, masses, and accelerations in a number of different contexts. Uh, institutions are not merely places where scientists and students meet. They are organizations that allow scientific inquiry hmm. to proceed in a systematic and orderly manner. This principle might be the most controversial given the low view many Americans hold of institutions. Hmm. And for sake of time, we'll keep moving on there. But he's suggesting institutions uh, really add to our ability to see someone and believe an expert. And again, this is from BioLogos. It's posted on our Facebook page, the Common Radio Show. Go read it. There are two more principles. We don't have a lot of time, but I'll, I'll briefly read this one. Principle five, there are limits to scientific expertise, expertise. As much as there is skepticism toward scientific expertise in the Christian community, it is also fair to say that our wider culture often attributes too much authority to scientists. As many have noted, scientists have replaced clergy in terms of prestige and moral authority in Western culture because scientists are thought to exemplify rationality and objectivity many are thus willing to trust statements by scientists even on subjects far outside their scientific field how do we draw these limits in the previous principle i made a distinction between physical conceptual and spiritual skill which i think can help one to understand the limits of science so why don't you get us into this last one real quick last one we should take scientific expertise seriously I conclude by answering the question in the title of the blog post. Yes, we should believe scientific experts on certain subjects or to put it another way, we should take scientific expertise seriously by seriously. I mean, we should not treat science like we often do politics where people pick sides Mm -hmm. on issues and then Mm -hmm. automatically reject claims made by the other side to take scientific expertise seriously is to approach a scientific theory with an open mind and awareness of your own lack of knowledge and competence on an Mm -hmm. issue. One might remain unconvinced by the argument, but a humble approach to the matter will help avoid the problem against which Augustine warned in his commentary on the book of Genesis, damaging the credibility of the Christian faith by claiming to know things on matters that one is ignorant. Man, is that our day to day? Man, oh, man. This is a good example of articles that we should have dedicated two segments to. Because man, no doubt. There's a lot here. Either way, it's posted on the Facebook page. We'd love to know. What do you think? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? And uh, we welcome any and all perspectives there. Well, in the uh, in the spirit of right turns, coming up next, we're going to land the plane that we the way we always do with some interweb insanity stories that we have not read, sound effects we have not heard. That's how we're going to end the show today on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Ooh, boy, that music is exciting. And most of you should know, maybe you don't know, that means only one thing. It is the end of the show. Time for some interweb insanity, stories that we have not read, accompanied by sound effects that we have not heard. It is maybe the most foolish thing that we do during these two hours to continue to subject ourselves to this particular segment. I feel like the last week or so, we've gotten some surprisingly dark stories real quickly before we get into them. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And it's not too late. This still qualifies as a belated birthday gift. If you want to go to the podcast, mm-hmm. subscribe, rate, and review. That will fill Brian Fromm's words of affirmation tank to overflowing. And who who wouldn't want to do that for a guy like Brian Fromm? Just exactly. a good, you all want to do good, that. Good. You all want to. Exactly. So head on over to the podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. And to kick us off, with this most terrifying segment, why don't you start us off, Brian? 
Yeah, first one's going to be happy out of Texas. Texas right. restaurant gets $1,300 tip on the first day of reopening. Right on. A Texas restaurant owner said a customer who came in with his family on the day the dining area reopened insisted on doubling his bill and then left a $1,300 tip. Well. David Fernandez, owner of Austin Eatery Frog and the Bull, said the restaurant's dining area was reopened Friday when the coronavirus stayed home order was eased and a customer who came in that day with his family racked up a $337 bill. Hmm. Server Josh Pickoff, age 18, brought Fernandez to the table when the customer asked to have his bill doubled. He said, charge me double for everything. I asked, are you sure? He said, yes. Fernandez said the man's request was fulfilled and the customer left an additional $300 tip for Pickoff and a $1,000 tip for the restaurant owner. The man signed his receipt with the message for the eatery. Good luck. (laughs) I just want to tell you both. Good luck. We're all counting on you. Now, that was a weird end of that story, wasn't it? It really good. Good, good luck. Good all right. So this one seems like a positive one, too, out of Nebraska, which doesn't seem positive yet. Um, man collects $20,000 jackpot after a lottery T-shirt saved his life. Whoa. <laughs> a Nebraska man who collected a $20,000 lottery jackpot said the win came just a few years after his life was saved by a Nebraska lottery T-shirt. I'm interested. Jimmy Brzezina visited Nebraska Lottery headquarters in late April to collect his $20,000 grand prize from a Golden Cherry multiplier scratch-off ticket, and he told officials the lottery had previously brought him luck in the form of a T-shirt he was wearing October 13th, 2012. It feels like I'm repeating a lot of the same information, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Brzezina said he was wearing a Nebraska Lottery T-shirt under his corduroy shirt while working as a mold and pattern maker at a Lincoln machine shop. So not like dangerous mold, like for... (laughs) He said... He heard a hissing sound followed by the explosion of a moisture accumulator just a few feet away from where he was standing, maybe because of mold. The worker said multiple pieces of PVC shrapnel pierced his body, and when his shirt was cut open at a local hospital, they discovered a shard that had been headed for his his viral organs as uh, were snagged on the T-shirt. That old T-shirt saved my life. Lottery officials said winners... Each receive a T-shirt when they collect their prizes, but Brazina's story earned him an extra two shirts. Money, 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 money! I'm sorry, I, I, I kept trying to like end the story, but I was so captivated by every detail it was of it. A good story, but they they misprinted you there with viral organs. I'm going with vital organs, right? Oh no, there was vi- viral organs is what he wanted. <laughs> Next one's oh my home state of New Jersey. Uh, backhoe joyrider who caused $13,000 in damage at construction site. He faces charges. Oh, boy. Uh, police have arrested a man accused of jumping on a backhoe and trashing a construction site in Bridgeton last month. Damian Long, age 29, is accused of entering the site at North Laurel Street on April 11th, firing up the backhoe and joyriding around the property. He allegedly smashed in a utility pole, breaker box, and office trailer, and the backhoe causing around $13,500 in damage. Long was arrested April 22nd while he was staying at a home in Hopewell Township. He was charged with burglary and criminal mischief and released pending a court hearing. Hey, this is fun, isn't it? We're going to die, aren't we? <laughs> All right, we're running out of time. I'm going to move us along though. out of England. I, I think we might be done with the positive stories, Brian. Man <laughs> tasered as police officers and police dog injured after being shot with catapult. It's kind of funny, though. A dog with a cat. A pull. Okay. Oh, Two police officers go. and a police dog were injured after the driver of a stolen car shot at them using a catapult whilst trying to flee 
uh, in Wil- Wil- Wiltshire. Okay. Wiltshire, stolen, yeah. stolen Land Rover Discovery entered the south of the country from Dorset at around 10 a.m. And uh, and authorization? Oh, I get it. Because it's an S. <laughs> authorization was given to specialist roads police officers to pursue it with the help from the National Police Air Service. That's weird. Last one's also out of England. Own a chunk of the moon for a price. Rich space enthusiasts who can't get a seat on a rocket now can settle for having space come to them. Christie's has a chunk of the moon for sale, and it's valued at $2.5 million, reports Reuters. The lunar meteorite weighs about 30 pounds and was discovered in the Sahara Desert in 2017. It is exceedingly rare for a moon rock this big to be up for sale. Christie's notes that this is the fifth largest specimen known on Earth, and this one is larger than any brought back by astronauts. The private sale began last week. The experience of holding a piece of another world in your hands is something you can never forget. Would you like to yell at the moon with Buzz Aldrin? Yes, please. I own you! You dumb moon! I walked on your face! Don't you know it's day? Idiot. Okay, so I'm going to say we ended on a neutral note. Is that yeah. fair? Which which I'm going to sign up for. I'm going to go good on that. Are you? All right. Well, let us let us know how that goes, Brian Fromm. Yeah. I'd love to know how that story develops. Well, I'm staring right at my weather app, and it looks like tomorrow is going to be a much warmer, much sunshinier yes. day. So we hope you'll join us again tomorrow and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I am Ian Simpkins. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.